Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. 
As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. In this episode of The Unmistakable Creative Musician, programmer, author, and CD Baby founder Derek Sivers joins us to talk about creating a life that enables you to get anything you want. Derek, welcome to The Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. Cool. Thanks, Randy. Yeah. So it is my absolute pleasure to have you here because you've been long requested uh, by many of our listeners and fans of the show uh, just because I, I know the work that you do has impacted their lives in some way or another, either through your TED Talks, your books, or even through CD Baby. And you know, you've done all these sort of really iconic things like you know, founding CD Baby and selling it for $100 million, writing these amazing books, and doing, having this really sort of multi-hyphenate career and where I want to start really is what the formative experiences of your life uh, have been and inflection points that have ultimately led to everything that you're up to and all these things that you've ended up doing. That's a hell of a first date question, huh? <laughs> <laughs> um, well, um, let's see. I moved every year. I think that was a big thing. Uh-huh. Um, I've heard people, now that I have a kid, I've heard other people say, well, you know, kids need stability. I'm one of those kids who moved every, other, every couple of years. Oh, cool. All right. Maybe you get this. That to me, moving every year was my normal. Like that was, that was just the thing to do. Was we've just moved every year. And I remember this moment. I still can vividly picture this. When I was six years old, when we moved to Chicago. And I remember asking my mom, like, so how long are we going to stay here? And she said, well, maybe five, maybe even ten years. Like, my lips started quivering. I went, <laughs> like, the idea of, like, staying in one place for five years. Oh, my God, that was a horrible thought. So it's kind of funny that you know, we did end up living there for ten years. But sure enough, as uh, soon as I was able to get free, like, as soon as I graduated high school, I was off to Boston for a few years, New York for a few years, and just have just been bouncing around ever since. And haven't lived anywhere for more than a couple years since then. So that's just physical location wise. Mm -hmm. And actually just very recently, somebody told me that that's a very American thing to do. They said, well, you know, Americans often deal with their problems by moving. <laughs> and I think it's just a side effect of just the, this big giant country where you're allowed to move anywhere. And a lot of people that settled there came from other places and they moved to be there. So, you know, it's not like uh, my friend, Anna, who, lives in this house in Padua, Italy, that is, you know, her family has owned since the 1600s, <laughs> you know, it's just a different mindset. But mm -hmm. anyway, um, so I think that, yeah, I, I move around a lot and uh, that applies career-wise too. There's this feeling of been there, done that. Um, I read a quote from an artist, a painter that I liked once that said something like, I like to do something until I know how to do it and then I stop. Hmm. And, um, I think that applies to things that I do. Hmm. How, 
did the experience of moving around so much impact uh, the social relationships in your life and the way that you run and build companies and lead people and interact with people? Um, the way that I interact with people, I found that ever since I left my high school, uh, when I graduated high school, moved off to Boston, I kept in touch with friends by phone. And really, I think even in high school, I did the kind of classic high school thing of talking to my friends for hours a night on the telephone. And I still do that. Like right now, my two best friends are in Portland, Oregon and New York City. And I'm in Wellington, New Zealand. And oh, sorry, actually, you know, there's a third one in Sweden. Yeah, actually, my three best friends. So yeah, Portland, Oregon, New York City and Sweden. And we talk every day on the phone uh, or every other day. And I think that's just very normal to me. I think other people um, have this definition of friendship as friendship are the people that you go hang out with and you go do things with. Mm -hmm. And say if you were to move away from your town, you'd kind of lose those friendships because you're not hanging out anymore. So I guess I've always been a remote friend. Mm. Uh, As far as companies, um, this is kind of new to me. I mean, CD Baby, I set up in person. I mean, it was a pick, pack, and ship warehouse business. It was very much like based in a place, though I was kind of uncomfortable with that. So about four or five years into it, I made uh, made sure that it was autonomous, that it could just run without me. And then I went down to Los Angeles to be with my girlfriend while the company was up in Portland, Oregon, and uh, just ran it remotely. And I guess I did that for the rest of the company's history. Yeah. Um, I like, I like working alone. I like being somewhere else from where everything else is. <laughs> so that's interesting. You like working alone, yet you've done these really big things that involve other people. And I'm just interested in how that works, like how the dynamic of that actually plays out uh, and how other people deal with similar situations. Like I thrive entirely off of being around other people. And that's largely, I think, why I've chosen this as a platform. Ah, okay. So I don't mind being in touch with people. So like my email inbox, you know, I put aside time every day to, Mm -hmm. I get probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 emails a day and I answer every single one and I put aside some time to do that. So uh, like my girlfriend, for example, thinks that I'm crazy social, but she's a professor and she's a real introvert. Um, So I'm definitely an introvert. Like I like to physically be alone like if if i'm in a room by myself i feel that i have like unlimited energy i could just go forever Uh the minute you put one other person in that room uh, it just drains all my energy away like i'm just tired within you know half an hour even if i'm not talking to that person even if that person is just like on the other side of a big room just having another person around drains me so i just love total solitude for work like that but say for example my wood egg book publishing company that I did a couple years ago. God, I had something like a total of 130 people um, working to make those books. So it was Uh a series of 16 books. Each one had three researchers, a couple writers, and an editor. And I just never met any of them in person. It was all just remote, and I systemized the things. So it was kind of like a little bookmaking factory and slotted people in found people, put them into the slots and people that wanted to do it. And if anybody had to uh, flake out or take off or change their mind, it was no big deal to kind of slot somebody else in. And uh, I'm really comfortable with those kind of situations. So um, 
I think that's a, that's the hybrid for me of a way of working with other people, but yet physically being alone. Mm. So you've done all these things, and I guess you know one of the the bigger questions that comes from this for me, uh, as I'm thinking about all the people that I've spoken with and and wrestling with a chapter in the book that I'm writing around mastery, like how people become masters. You've had this sort of multi hyphenate career, and I'm just curious, like how do you know when you've reached a point where it's time to move on to something else? And do you think that everybody is destined to have sort of a multi-hyphenate body of work? Or are there some people who are just destined to be, you know, masters at one thing in particular? Um, I don't know. Well, let's see. That's a kind of a trick question. Um, <laughs> I've been known to about, do that to people. <laughs> it's not about destined to be. Yeah. It's about, um, hmm, let me think for a second. Sometimes it depends just how broadly or narrowly you are defining what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So to me, writing songs, writing um, like copy, I guess you could call it, like writing my site, like all the communication, writing my essays, let's say, writing the blog posts on my site, and writing computer code, those three things all feel pretty similar to me. It's all just creative expression. Um, actually, I think writing songs is kind of a hybrid between the two. Mm -hmm. So maybe I could see why those two things grew out of it. So imagine this. When you're writing a song, especially, well, obviously, like a song with lyrics, then your lyrics are successful um, based on how well they are received, right? Like, if you write some lyrics and, like, nobody has any idea what you're talking about or they completely misunderstand you, um, or they just generally don't like the lyrics, mm -hmm. then you've kind of failed at those lyrics. Um, unless your only mission was to just scratch your own itch and you didn't care about anybody hearing it. But for the most part, um, mm -hmm. your lyrics are successful if people get it and they like it. So I think it's the same thing with writing essays or writing copy, writing the text on your website, um, or writing articles or writing a book even. It's, it's all about how well it's understood. You have these thoughts in your head and you're trying to get them into someone else's head, right? Mm -hmm. So if you do that well, you've uh, succeeded. But then the other half of music is uh, the, the music itself kind of putting this all together and taking this uh, sound or this idea in your head of this music or this song you want to write and having to go through some skills in order to make it happen, whether it's finger dexterity on an instrument or recording studio dexterity to uh, make the sounds you want to make. Um, that to me feels kind of like programming. Um, I have this idea in my head of a website or some app that I want to exist. And now I've got to type out the right code and wrestle with it and figure out how to turn that idea in my head into reality. So everything I'm doing to me kind of feels like one big thing. Hmm. Um, it doesn't feel so multi-hyphenate until somebody is asking me, you know, like if I do a blurb <laughs> on the back of a book cover and somebody's saying, oh, how do you want to be credited? I'm like, oh, uh, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Just say Derek Sivers. Um, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It all feels like one big thing. Yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I, you know, my, my work has taken on uh, a number of different forms, uh, you know, in the form of producing events, producing books, and producing this podcast, although the podcast is sort of the primary one. But it, it seems like it had all these sort of extensions that I never planned or predicted. Right. Now, imagine this. Different people have different 
reasons for what they're doing. Uh-huh. So some people may start a company because they want to make a lot of money. And that's their main goal with that company. Just make as much money as I can. That's why I'm doing this. Other people, their goal may be to leave a legacy. You know, I want to do this company. I want to say, you know, the, the classic Silicon Valley thing of measuring your impact on the world. I want to change the world. I want to have a big impact on the world. And that's how they would measure the success of their project, their company. But someone else, and this is my example, mm-hmm. um, may do things just for the doing, like just for the curiosity of seeing if this is something you can do. Almost kind of like, it's more of a personal development reason for doing things. Like, I want to see if I can start a book publishing company, or I want to see if I can make this little idea happen, or I want to see if I can learn a new programming language and do all of the programming myself without asking for any help. Or You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. that may be the personal challenge. And that's what I was actually doing with CD Baby. Um, and even with Wood Egg, honestly, both of those things were just scratching a personal itch. That was just something that I wanted to see if I could do. It was like a little a puzzle I wanted to solve. And so when people would come to me saying, you know, you could make a lot more money if you would do such and such and such. We should consider going for an IPO. Let's get some investors involved. We could really grow this thing. And that was completely lost on me. I had no interest in that at all because I wasn't doing it for the money. Uh-huh. Uh, in fact, getting other people in to lead my company or even hiring other programmers would have made the whole thing moot for me. Like CD baby, I did all of the front and back end programming myself. There were no other programmers. It was just me. And that was why I enjoyed doing it. If you were to suddenly bring in a team of programmers, I would just lose all interest and just <laughs> shut it down because there was no reason to do it anymore. Same thing with even uh, making music uh-huh. uh, for you know 10 years. I was this full, maybe 15 years. I was a full-time musician And I insisted on playing all of the instruments myself and singing everything myself. And every now and then, like, a well-meaning producer would listen to it and say, you know, you really should just get a different singer. You're just clearly not a singer. Just get a better singer. And I'd say, no, out of the question, because that would just lose the whole point of why I'm doing this. I'm not doing this in order to have the best final product. I'm doing this in order to uh, practice my singing and see if I can improve as a singer. That's the reason I'm doing this. If other people like it, it's just a side effect. But my primary reason for doing any of this is the personal improvement aspect of it. Okay, I love this. You're speaking my language, and I think this is really going to gel with people. You know, I, I knew you'd probably take us down this direction because I, I read on your website, you said, you know, one of the, the main reasons you do anything is for, for intrinsic motivation. And I've always found this to be one of those things that is very complex uh, to understand because we can understand something like what you're saying very intellectually, uh, but it's a lot harder to internalize. And I remember Danielle Laporte told me uh, in an interview, she said, your art can never be about the money. And my response was, yeah, that's easy for you to say. You're Danielle Laporte. <laughs> and yet when I finally got that, a lot of things started to change. And I, I guess you know, I'm interested in how people sort of find their way to their own intrinsic motivation, if that makes any sense. Well, I think we all start out there. Yeah. If you see a kid playing with Legos, you're like, why are you doing that? What is the ultimate goal? You know, mm-hmm. you could, it could be a much better castle if you were to have somebody else do that. <laughs> you know, you're like, I'm playing <laughs> with Legos. 
Like, why would you wouldn't nobody would say that to a kid? You understand? No, he's enjoying playing with his Legos. Yeah. So I just feel the same way. Like I'm doing this because I enjoy it. Um, and I think people get a lot of it. I think is just is money driven. You get this kind of like necessity and fear. Like I need money. I need lots of money. What's the best way I can make a lot of money? I can make this big company and then we can get some other, we can get, make a lot more money if we get with these investors and then the investors will give us some money and we can make more money that way. And if you get really, really driven by that stuff, then yeah, it changes all of your further decisions. This isn't play anymore. This is work. This is serious. We need the maximum return. And well, now I've got investors. So uh-huh. I need to give them the biggest return for their dollar. Otherwise they're going to be upset and give me grief and whatever. Um, but I think a lesson I learned way early on, uh, my very first long-term girlfriend, um, when I was a teenager, 20 years old, she grew up in this hippie family where they grew up in a commune in Vermont with no electricity. She never had a TV. Um, they grew up with, or she grew up with almost nothing, but yet... And, and her parents didn't have jobs. They just did random little odd jobs. And yet they were able to put her through college just because they kept their cost of living so low that they could just do whatever they wanted. Just doing random projects were enough to pay for their cost of living. And that was a huge influence on me. So although I did get a job um, straight out of college, I got a job in the tape room at Warner Chapel Music Publishing um, in New York City. I kept my cost of living so low. So I was earning $21,000 a year salary, but I kept my cost of living down to $12,000 a year Um, just because I spent nothing. (laughs) I was just renting one room in a house with three other guys. I spent no money on anything. I never even took a taxi. I would spend hours just waiting for the subway because it would save me $4 or whatever. But I kept my cost of living down to nil so that after two years of working there, two and a half years of working there, I had saved up 12,000 bucks. And I quit my job. So honestly, Srini, that was the last time I had a job. It was 1992. Mm. I quit my last job. And um, I've just found a way to live cheaply ever since so that I could have the freedom to just do whatever I want and not need to do things for the money. Mm. Okay, so this this raises a, a ton of questions, uh, specifically around the internal narratives around money. I mean, it's such a complicated issue that raises, you know, some real emotional hot buttons for people, you know, myself included. And... It's interesting because, I mean, you went from that position to selling a company for a seriously large amount and then not only that, donating all of the money. So I'm interested in kind of how your internal narrative around money and wealth has evolved uh, over time. And why do you think it's that so many people struggle with this? And more importantly, how do they start to change it? Oh, boy. Um, (laughs) Let me actually, you know, if remember the second half of that question, because I'm going to forget it. Okay, second, I'm going to just talk about first half of your question, um, that I kind of, okay, when I was a full-time musician, when I was like doing the hustle, I was a full-time musician living in New York City, and the way you do that is you just say yes to everything. Somebody says, hey, we're looking for a heavy metal guitarist for this recording session. I say, yep, I'm a heavy metal guitarist. Count me in. What does it pay? <laughs> and somebody says, hey, we're looking for a jazz piano player for this art show. What does it pay? 350 bucks. Yes, I'm a jazz piano player. Count me in. And then I just quickly go practice piano and learn some basic jazz <laughs> enough to you know, get paid. And that's how I made a living as a full-time musician. Um, even bought a house with the money I made touring. Um, so to me, that was like the measure of success as a musician, uh, as a professional musician. 
is that I was able to make my living doing it full time. Um, but then I really enjoyed reading books on sales and marketing and applying those lessons to my uh, music business, right? So I would get a call from a university saying, hey, we're looking for a solo acoustic performer um, for August 12th. Are you available? And I'd say, hmm, probably. You know, it depends on well, it depends on what you can afford because I've got to travel to get there. They'd say, well, we can only afford $300. And I'd say, oh, sorry, I can't do it for anything less than 500 because such and such. And they'd say, well, that's that's really the best we can do. Uh, our maximum budget is 400 I'd say, okay, well, I can do it for 400 if you're able to help me contact some of the universities next to you to line up some gigs the day before or day after, then I could do it for 400 And they'd say, okay, sure. And I'd hang up the phone like, yes, I did it. I made an extra 100 bucks, and I'm going to book two gigs now instead of one. And I'd get such a sense of achievement out of having done that. And the money was definitely part of that. It was like this neutral measure of, of success. Like I got 400 bucks instead of 300 bucks for that gig. It was easy to measure, right? Uh-huh. So what's funny is um, it wasn't selling my company that got me rich. It was actually CD Baby was quite profitable on its own. I think it was making a net profit of about $4 million a year. And I had no investors. I was the only owner. So already just you know four or five years into it, I was making enough that I could just retire right then if I wanted to, um, assuming I keep my costs of living low. Really. Right. Um, but there was a little bit of sadness around this for the most part. Like when I was just deep in CD baby, it was just completely intrinsic. I wasn't doing it for the money. In fact, I barely ever looked at my bank account. It's just like a couple times a year. I would look at my bank account and go, wow, (laughs) that's bigger than I expected. Cool. Um, I wasn't even really keeping my eye on the money because I was just busy, you know, making CD baby what it needed to be for its own sake. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of sadness though, around missing having that clear measure of success. Um, I missed getting excited about getting that extra hundred bucks for a gig, you know? And I remember actually, I've talked with a couple famous musicians about this, but they say that is one of the downsides of getting rich and famous is they kind of miss that, uh, the hustle, the joy of like booking a gig and, and uh, getting 20 people to come down to a club or whatever you kind of, you can miss that aspect later as it grows, but all it means is that you really have to just start doing things for completely for intrinsic reasons or other reasons. Sometimes people turn their attention to charitable reasons. You know, how many am I able to help create a school in Cambodia or something like that? Like that can motivate them more than earning another hundred bucks. But, um, yeah, all, all that said, um, making a lot of money is, fucking awesome <laughs> it's it's a really it's a wonderful security it's it's pretty amazing then that like once you've got that covered you know maslow's pyramid of needs uh-huh. once you've got that covered you can just turn your attention to the other stuff and no longer really ever do anything for the money again which is actually kind of a hard habit to break yeah so let's talk about people in their internal narrative around money. Like, do you think oh, you've got to get to that sorry. point of selling something for that much to get the, like, well, actually this is, this is the, the, the bigger question around this. Okay. Can we shift the narrative so that the circumstances change? 
how do you mean circumstances? So let's say that you're not where you want to be financially, and a large part of it is driven by your internal narrative around money. Can you shift the narrative that you're, you know, the dialogue you're having with yourself around money and your relationship with money so that the situation financially changes? Ah, um, good question. I mean, clearly, yes. <laughs> I mean, you kind of knew that answer, yeah. asking that question. You knew the answer is yes. Yeah, um, I, I know the answer is yes. I want to know how. And I'm wondering, is this actually just isolated to certain individuals or are some people just destined not to ever be rich? No, we we each have things that trigger us in different ways. So I remember years ago reading a Tony Robbins book where he was trying to motivate the reader by saying, um, imagine all the things you could buy. Don't you want to have your own helicopter? Don't you, don't you want to buy a private island someday? Imagine driving your brand new fancy sports car. I remember reading this just feeling like, nah, that's all lost on me. You know, that's, mm-hmm. That does nothing for me. Whereas I know some other people directly that are very, very influenced by this idea of like, I'm going to work extra hard or I'm going to focus on adding value to my customers or I'm going to, I'm going to create the best customer experience because I want to buy a Ferrari, you know? And it's not shallow. There was even a, um, got an interview with uh, the Beatles once, I think like a couple of years after they broke up in the 70s. An interviewer was uh, interviewing Paul McCartney, and he said something like, you know, people like to glorify the Beatles in thinking that we were all just peace and love, man. But he said, no, when when John Lennon and I were writing those early songs, we would sit down and say, let's write a swimming pool. Let's write a song that is going to earn us enough money to buy a swimming pool. So it was definitely motivated by money. Um, so it's you've just got to know what works for you, right? So to me, it was the the freedom uh-huh. This idea of uh, earning enough to feel free, to not to not have to do anything for the money, which clearly from you know what I told you was pretty easy for me because I was able to keep my cost of living down to like a thousand bucks a month. Right. So if I was was able to do just even a couple gigs in New York for you know a few hundred dollars each, then I had earned my monthly cost of living, and everything on top of that was just extra you know so obviously you know there's this big thing like you can keep your cost of living way low so that it's nice and measurable but on the other hand if you read Richard Branson's autobiographies he was driven by the sense of desperation he would get himself into a jam somewhat intentionally um he'd always go down to the last wire like he would borrow a ridiculous amount of money from the bank spend it all and everything, get himself into a jam, and then be forced to do some kind of big money-making gamble at the last minute in order to get the bank back their money by the, you know, tomorrow when it was due. (laughs) And a lot of his growth was driven by that sense of desperation, whereas, you know, that that wouldn't work for me. So anyway, you talk about the, the narratives we create. I don't think anybody can just hand you down one and say, this is what, this is how you need to think about money. You'll just listen to lots of different people talking about money and motivations, and then you'll find that one clicks for you, one works for you. Yeah. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Yeah, it was interesting. It, it reminds me of a conversation I was having with a friend of mine the other day. And, you know, I just gotten back from a surf trip to El Salvador. And I said, you know, it's really bizarre. I said, you know, when you boil it down, I said, my motivation for everything that I've gotten to do, write books with a publisher, produce the show. I said, strangely, I said, you know what, the whole motivation right from the beginning was designed so that I could surf whenever I wanted to. <laughs> I said, awesome. That was the ultimate motivation. It, it trumped <laughs> everything else. And all the other things, like you said, are just sort of byproducts. But that one thing has always been so consistent that I was just like, I'm willing to do whatever I have to in order to make sure that I have the ability to do that. Wow. That's a great thing to realize. You know, it's, and sometimes you can only find that out through experience. Oh, yeah. I've it's lost kind of sight like, of it at times. I've definitely yeah. lost sight of it at times. You know, that's why I don't think we should ever regret our 
bad times in the same way that we shouldn't regret our bad relationships. You know, mm-hmm. like so many people that you date early on that you're together, your long string of girlfriends or boyfriends or whatever, um, each one is teaching you what you don't want. If yeah. you break up with that person, you go like, Ugh, never again will I be with somebody who does that. And I think as you go through life, that's how you learn what you do want is mm-hmm. by a long string of realizing what you don't want. Hey, on, on that note, you brought up the the fact that most people think is weird about how I uh, gave everything away or I put everything into a charitable trust when yeah. I sold the company, therefore kind of giving it away in advance of selling it. So that to me just came from this aesthetic I have of understanding the word enough. I really like knowing what's enough. Um, so this even comes down to uh, like personal decor, for example. If you look at my house, uh, there's almost nothing in it. It's only what I need mm-hmm. for me and my kid. I, I don't usually tend to uh, entertain guests. In fact, I pretty much almost never have more than one person over. So for example, I only own two plates because (laughs) that's enough. I don't need eight plates because I never have eight people over. I don't want eight people to come over. So I have two plates. That's enough. Um, And I only own one pair of pants because you can't wear more than one. (laughs) And uh, So things like that. Like I, I really like understanding the word enough. And so by the time I sold, or by the time I was selling CD Baby, I already had a few million dollars saved up, and that was enough for me. Um, that was enough for the rest of my life, assuming that it's just conservatively invested and I'm just living off the interest and not touching the principal, uh-huh. then that's enough. And um, I spent a few months thinking, what the fuck am I going to do with $22 million? And I realized that all of the ideas I was thinking of were violating my aesthetic of enough. It's like, I don't even want the 22 million. You know, all I'm really going to do is give it away. And so it's when I talked to my um, lawyer, who was also a friend and just somebody who got me and was a good guy and also had a tax law background, when I described to him that I was just going to give it all away anyway, that's when he said, well, you know, if you really, really mean that, like you're sure you are never going to change your mind on that, there's something you can do where you can give it away in advance. And so that's that's why I did that. It's like uh, by giving away, giving it away in advance had a few psychological benefits too. So that the tax benefit was instead of me earning $22 million personally, then paying $7 million tax on that and really only having $15 million left to give away to charity, by giving it away, giving the company away in advance of selling it meant that all $22 million goes to charity and never touches my hands. This also had a psychological benefit because I would never have this sense of regret like, ooh, I should have just, uh, maybe I should have just bought a Ferrari first and then give it the rest away. <laughs> or, you know, or even just having you know, $15 million sitting in an account with my name on it might have been dangerous in a lifetime. You know, if I get depressed or something, I might go do something stupid. So I really liked the, the fact that it took it out of my hands so I didn't even have it to spend, you know. Huh. So. Can we bring about these psychological benefits even in small ways, uh, like in our day-to-day uh, transactions with money? Oh, God, yeah. That's what's brilliant about reading these uh, books about behavioral economics, like um, Predictably Irrational. Mm-hmm. By We've had Dan here before. 
Oh, good. Okay. You read Predictably Irrational or you read um, Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman. There's a whole series of these books, uh, Stumbling on Happiness, The Paradox of Choice. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are around this subject of behavioral economics, which are learning about the faulty wiring in our brain and then ideally setting up your life in such a way to uh, take advantage of or protect yourself from your faulty wiring. Can you give us a tactical example of how might we might apply this in just sort of a day-to-day transaction? Um, let's see. I think paradox of choice is quite popular. So we all know this idea of um, having some choice is good, but that doesn't mean that having more choice is always better. And when you read and understand that message, you realize that you don't have to give yourself the maximum number of options. In fact, you're happier if you uh, do what they call satisficing instead of maximizing. That if you, when making a decision, you say the phrase good enough a lot. <laughs> you know, like, this this car is good enough. I don't need the best possible car that's available to man. I don't need the best possible computer. I just need one that's good enough. Believing that can... And, and really internalizing that and understanding that can save you a lot of money. Hmm. Um, there's also this, uh, the book um, Stumbling on Happiness. Sounds like it's new agey, but it's not. It's written by this um, professor of psychology at Harvard that's been studying happiness for decades. And one key finding is that when people buy some new thing, the happiness it generates is actually only in the moment of comparison where you're comparing your new thing to your old thing. In that moment, yes, you are happy. But once you've had this new thing for a while, and it might only be a week, Mm -hmm. you're no longer comparing it to your previous thing anymore. It has now just become your new normal. And the happiness from that item fades away because you're no longer comparing it. So if you really understand that, then there's no need to buy every new iPhone just because you hear of all of its benefits. You understand that, like, I could, I could go spend a thousand dollars, even if it's uh, whatever subsidized through mm-hmm. my monthly payments. You know, add it up, it's still coming to a thousand bucks or something. I could spend a thousand dollars, but it's really only going to make me happy for a week. Um, is that worth it to me? Or you know, people who spend extra to fly business class or first class, and it's like, well, how much is six hours of happiness worth to me? Because moment I get off that plane, I mean, I get there at the same time as the people in economy. So is, am I really going to spend an extra $4,000 to be happier for six hours? I don't know. You, use these kind of behavioral economics questions. Um, understanding and realizing that this, the studies that have been done also apply to you. Hmm. Well, I think this, that actually makes a perfect transition to something else I want to talk about, uh, and I think this just will be kind of an interesting deep dive into how you spend your days. You know, one of the things you said on your website is that you're fascinated by usable self-help. And I actually really appreciated that because I felt so often that so much self-help material is just a bunch of inspirational psychobabble that doesn't translate into actual results for people. And what they end up doing is just becoming addicted to self-help. And I love that idea of making it usable. So I'm just curious, you know, why is so much of it, so much of it unusable and how do we translate it into something usable? And how have you translated it to something usable in your own life? Well, most of it, I think, just is a way of thinking that makes people feel better. 
right? And that's that's totally valid. Like mm-hmm. I've got nothing against that. Um, if you've had some uh, very difficult things happen in your life, and you are able to read something that helps you reframe that stuff that happened to you in the past in such a way that it makes you feel better about it, then that's great. Um, and I think that's maybe why people become addicted to it is because while reading that book, like while the author's words are still kind of echoing in your head, written in that beautiful inspirational way, you feel so much better in that moment. And maybe you feel better about your future. Maybe it's you're reading something that is inspiring you for the future. Um, and in that moment, you're reading that you're, you're filled with a sense of uh, hope and optimism uh, you feel really good about it. And then you finish the book and you you go to sleep and you go back to work the next day and you don't change anything and you're like, oh, I kind of miss feeling that good. I'm going to read another book. <laughs> and then you read another book you're like, ah, oh, yeah, see, I can do anything. I can be anything I want. I can, you know, I can the, the world is mine. This feels really good reading this. And it's done and, and the feeling fades because you just go back to doing the same old thing. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's... I'd still have to say, though, that that's, that's valid. Sometimes you really do need to feel better about things that have happened in your past. Um, I, I definitely had that with, um, what was it, uh, Pema Chodron uh-huh. wrote a couple brilliant books that, um, that made me feel a lot better just thinking of things that had happened to me in the past that were, like, really annoying me, like, still kind of stuck under my skin. And I'd read something by her that just made me go, like, oh wow, that's a really nice way to think about it. That feels really good. And I, I don't know if I actually changed my actions mm-hmm. in that moment. I think it just, it felt really good. And I made my peace with this like thing in the past. Um, one thing you can do, by the way, to solidify these, is I think that's what's so great about blogging, is that when you take something that you've recently learned and you share it in that moment, especially if you share it publicly, in a real way like that, you you internalize it more. It becomes part of your self-identity. Like, see, I've blogged this. This is who I am now. Like, this is this is a part of my public self, therefore my real self. Yeah. You know? So that's a good way of internalizing a, a way of thinking about something. Um, as far as actions, yeah, that's... I wish more authors would uh, give directives, like, do this. Uh-huh. Um, I don't know if you, the most recent um, blog post on my site, at least as of now as we're talking, is um, where I announced this kind of new project I'm doing where I felt like, now that I've read 225 books in the last few years, a lot of them with these really interesting observations about life and psychology and whatnot, most of them don't want to take that extra step into telling you what to do about it. They just leave the reader up to their own devices. Like, well, here's some really interesting observations we've had about the way the world works. So I uh, hope this is useful to you. Good luck. <laughs> you know, um, Most people don't turn it into something. Uh-huh. Whereas there was this paragraph that had a huge impact on me in this book about stoicism called A Guide to the Good Life, where he said, um, he said, Back in you know the days of the classic Stoic philosophers, they would tell you what to do with your life. Like if you were to ask one of them how to, like, how can I live a good life? Or how should I live my life? They would tell you, here's what you should do. 
He said, I get the feeling that today, if you were to ask a uh, philosophy major, <laughs> a philosopher, uh, what should I do with my life? They'd say, well, depends what you mean by do. Depends what you mean by life. And it depends what you mean by my. <laughs> you know? And they would just talk in circles all around this thing. You just never get to the, the simple directives of saying, do this. You know? I think of the, the Ten Commandments. They didn't, the Ten Commandments were not there to discuss all of the various issues. They just said, no, do this, don't do that, don't do that, do this. Uh-huh. I think there's really there's something powerful about um, prescribing an action. That, in, in fact, I think the action kind of carries the philosophy inside of it, kind of like uh, a seed, like those trees that, you know, they their seeds go fly in the wind and, and it's the, it carries the seed inside of it. So the philosophy is carried inside of the action. Um, so you can just give the action and you're, you're kind of prescribing the philosophy inside of it at the same time. Huh. So I, yeah, I wish more books did that. And so they don't. And so what I'm a new project, I'm just barely starting. I'm not even sure what form it's going to take. It's this idea of taking everything I've learned from the past, however many years and, however many books, and turning it into specific actions to prescribe. So one of the things this raises, and this is something that I have asked a lot of people, and I still to this day, I wonder if I get an answer to this question because I'm asking it or because it's a universal experience. I'm curious, you know, throughout this whole trajectory of yours, have there been any sort of rock bottom, dark night of the soul, like no hope for the future moments? No. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm really lucky that when I was 19, well, no, I'm, I'm lucky that when I was like 16, my grandma had a book on her shelf called How to Win Friends and Influence People. Mm-hmm. And I read that and it had a big impact on me. And I'm lucky that um, I was an ambitious uh, 16, 17-year-old wanting to be a rich and famous musician. And I saw a little book called... Um, Oh, what was it? The uh, uh, what was it? W. Clement Stone was the author's name. I forget the name of the book now, but but just one of those like classic nineteen thirties self help books, and um, and just you know devoured it when I was like seventeen. It just really internalized its lessons. And when I was nineteen, my boss at the circus. I worked in a circus for ten years. I was like a ringleader, MC of a circus. Wow. And my boss at the circus really cared about me. Um, and she said, you know what? I read this book called. Um, Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins. I think you'd really like it. And so, oh my God, Srini, when I read that at 19, it just floored me. And I I read it again and again. It just totally internalized everything he was talking about. read it again when I was 20, again when I was 22, again when I was 23, and just listened to everything he put out and all of his interviews with other people and really just internalized those philosophies. So much so that... um, Things that were very deliberate at first, such as like a a classic Tony Robbins line, is um, whenever anything bad happens to you, you have to ask yourself what's good about this or what's great about this. And I remember like the first time I heard that, I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Second time I heard it, it was like, yeah, okay, maybe. And then, then next time something bad happened to me, I didn't remember to do that, of course. But then like the next day, I was like, oh, I probably should have asked myself what's great about this. And then next time something bad happened to me, maybe it was like a few hours later, I remembered to ask what's great about this. And eventually, 
like over years, now it's just like this kind of instant reaction that the very second something bad happens to me, I just catch myself saying, well, what's great about this? <laughs> and therefore, I don't ever really get um, beaten down by things. You know, I just, I'm just in the habit of finding a useful aspect to it immediately. So you work in the circus. That uh, is really interesting. I'm curious, what kinds of lessons uh, did you bring, you know, from working in a circus into all the work that you've ended up doing throughout the rest of your life? Like, what did you learn from that? Um, the way to entertain a crowd is to make it all about them, not about you. Um, I think when I was 18 years old and I got up on stage at the circus with almost no performing experience. You know, I'd been a musician for a few years, but hadn't been a great entertainer, really. Um, I was really bad at first. And then the, the, my boss at the circus and the whole crew there, like, kept pushing me, like, no, you've got to, like, be more entertaining. Be more, like, you know, you got to, come on, these people are looking for entertainment. Don't just get up there and fucking stare at your feet and be a navel gazer, <laughs> you know? Like, put on a show. Give some pizzazz. And so... It took a long time for me to finally understand that lesson, and, and uh, I did it. I mean, I, I did over a 1,000 shows over the next um, 10 years and got a lot of experience in how to entertain a crowd, especially, you know, if you, if you can entertain a crowd of four-year-olds, you can entertain anyone. It's kind of funny when later I was performing at universities across, the, uh, across America and did the exact same tricks that I learned for... Uh, captivating a crowd of four-year-olds that also works on 20-year-olds. Um, so, but the bigger life lesson learned is that um, if you want to entertain an audience, this is about them, not you. You can't just get up there and, and just talk all about yourself and, and dive too deeply um, internally, unless, unless you're also going to do the masterful work of kind of finding a way to dive deep and make it entertaining to others. But to me, it's always top priority to make it about other people. So like pretty much everything you see on my site on Sivers.org is just, I'm doing that for others really. Yeah. Um, I want to talk uh, a little bit about some other uh, component. You know, you mentioned website, something that has caught my attention. And I've seen it sort of echoed and I know this came from you was this idea of if it's not a hell yes, it's a no. And mm -hmm. where that came about, how it's impacted your life and how it might impact ours and you know how that ties into this whole idea of anything you want. So multiple questions in one, I realize, okay. which I've done to you multiple so, times already. <laughs> um, so the hell yeah or no philosophy says um, it's when you're feeling overwhelmed, overbooked, there's too many opportunities and not enough time, then you should beware when you're just feeling like yes about something. Like if somebody says like, can you come speak at our conference? And if internally you're feeling like, mm, I could, I mean, well, the good thing is, you know, well, okay, my... But they pay for my travel to San Francisco, and okay, well, I could also see my sister. So yeah, I guess I could do that. I guess it could be beneficial. My point is, that should be a no. Because when you're overwhelmed, if you're feeling anything less than like, oh, hell yeah, that would be amazing. Mm -hmm. If you're feeling anything less than that, then you just have to say no. Because 
we feel, end up filling our lives with this like little tiny crap that we've obliged ourselves to do. It just fills up all of your time so that you don't have enough room in your life for those big hell yeah things that come along rarely. But on the other hand, if you said no to all the stuff that you felt merely yes about, mm-hmm. then when you get the occasional kind of like, oh, hell yeah opportunity, then you can just let it like fill up and expand. Um, you've got lots of room in your life to dive into those things. So this has worked really well for me, but I have to emphasize that it is a technique that applies only when you're feeling uh, overwhelmed, when you have more opportunities than time, right? Mm -hmm. When you're starting out and you have more time than opportunities, then the correct strategy is to say yes to everything. Kind of like I was saying earlier about being a professional musician in New York. Anytime anybody has a paying gig of any sort, even if it's not a hell yeah kind of thing. Like, you know, my very first paying gig was like, 75 bucks to play guitar at a pig show in Vermont. Mm-hmm. And it was like a $60 round trip ticket to get to Vermont. But I said yes, because it was like my first paying gig and you got to say yes to everything because every little tiny thing you say yes to can lead to more opportunities. So point is we need to learn to change strategies along the way. So yeah, if you're starting out and you have more time than opportunities just go say yes to everything. Go to Craigslist and just say yes to a bunch of stuff on there for people asking for help. Go, mm-hmm. go make yourself available to the world and say, I'm here to help anybody do anything. What do you need? <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever it is. Like just do everything. Like chase every opportunity. And only later, when you're overwhelmed with opportunities, you've got more, you know, more money than time, then you can start uh, changing strategies and apply the the hell yes or no approach. Wow. Well, Derek, this has been fascinating, uh, as I expected it would be. So I have one final question for you, which is how we finish every interview. What do you think it is that makes somebody or something unmistakable? Unmistakable. Um, I was thinking about that word before we got on the phone, that I'm assuming that if you interpret mistakeable as the ability to be mistaken or as able to be mistaken, kind of like the word misunderstood, then to be unmistakable, you must be very clear and unambiguous. And it reminds me of one of my favorite bits of advice about writing that someone said, uh, the key to good writing is not to be understood, it's to not be misunderstood. That's the bigger challenge. Uh, People are very likely to misunderstand what you're saying unless you're very clear. So um, what makes someone unmistakable, I guess, is to be very clear in your own head and in how you're um, living according to your beliefs. Be very clear, unambiguous, um, makes you unmistakable. Well, uh, I really, really appreciate you taking the time to join us and uh, share your story and your journey and your insights with our listeners. This has been great. Thanks, Rini. And yeah, anybody who, uh, if you made it all the way to the end of this interview, um, <laughs> I think I men- mentioned earlier that 
I actually enjoy putting aside a little time every day to answer every single email I get. So anyone feel free to email me at Derek at Sivers.org. Um, introduce yourself, ask me anything, and I'm happy to help. Cool. And uh, for everybody listening, I'll be sure to link up all the books that Derek mentioned in the show notes, uh, along with some of the blog posts we've talked about. And we will wrap the show with that. If you like what you heard, the greatest compliment you could give us is to share the show with a friend and let people know what you think by leaving a review on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Unmistakable Creative. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. 
This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.